Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to a special series of pathology podcasts celebrating the first National Pathology Week held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com and in these podcasts I'll bring you some of the highlights of Pathology Week along with interviews to explain more about the importance of pathology in society. In the rest of the series, we'll find out how to contain an outbreak of plague in London, we'll discuss the safety and health implications of home medical testing, and we'll discover the last operation anybody can have, the post-mortem. In this podcast, we'll find out about National Pathology Week itself, how it came to be, what sort of events were involved, and how well it was received. We'll also be looking into a recent pathology success story as Mike Clark and Alastair Coles from Cambridge University tell the story of Campath, a drug developed in Cambridge's Department of Pathology that has now shown itself to be very effective at treating MS. In this interview from the Naked Scientists podcast, Dr Helen Scales spoke to Professor Adrian Newland, who was the president of the Royal College of Pathologists at the time of Pathology Week. She wanted to discover the events leading up to Pathology Week, and importantly, to find out what the role of a pathologist really is. But first, what did the word pathology mean to the people who were actually at Pathology Week? I think it means the study of disease, um, as sort of the, the actual definition of pathology. But my sort of general understanding is pathology sort of deals with like dead people and stuff like that mainly from watching stuff like a silent witness it just seems like it's useful but often i think it can be a bit of an intrusion in people's privacy and stuff maybe a few negative connotations there shouldn't be and here's professor adrian newland explaining to helen scales the real role of pathology well the, the simple answer to that is pathologists are involved with diagnosis but there are at least 18 different types of pathologists who are involved with all aspects of the living from pregnancy and infertility right through to death and fatal diseases. Many of those types of pathologists will actually look after patients, will be involved in their care on the wards in addition to the diagnoses. And of course, many are also involved in the research behind the diseases. We're very keen to look at the, at the basis of disease. So we're involved in research and development to try and find out why diseases happen and how can we improve treatments. So it's really the everything about, about diseases, I guess. And uh, But it's it just doctors that are pathologists? No, we, we're the, the, there are a wide group of scientists as well. Our 20% of the members of our college are actually clinical scientists. Uh, we work together as a team in all aspects of, of diagnosis, research and, and patient care. And you yourself are a, a haematologist, is that right? Yes, that's right. So you deal with blood? 
Yep. <laughs> and I gather that you also do, you talk to patients, you meet, you, you work, you know, in that sort of capacity as well as more on the research side yourself. So that must, you must have an insight already into just how diverse a job being a pathologist is and the sort of things you do on a day-to-day basis. Yes, I, I cover all those aspects. In fact, it was one of the big attractions of going into the specialty. The fact that I could look after patients and take their blood and take it to the laboratory and actually be involved with the diagnosis. I didn't have to send a sample off, get a result back in a bit of paper and deal with it. That's the whole exciting element of that as, a, as an area to work in. And you're president of the Royal College of Pathologists. Now, what exactly is the role of that organisation? What do you do? We have, I guess, four main aims. We're involved in training, particularly training trainees in pathology. We're involved in maintaining standards developing guidelines. We're involved in promoting research and we're also involved in actually educating the patients and public in what pathology is and what their diseases are and to give them awareness of their of their bodies. I would have thought maybe on the surface that things like on TV we watch programmes like CSI and all those sort of things in dealing with autopsies and, and uh, the forensic side of things. Would that not be a good thing just to get people knowing about pathology but perhaps you think maybe... It's not such a good thing. I, I, I don't think it is. I, mean, I, I think that's fine, and we want to put the forensics into perspective, but m- many members of the public aren't even aware we're doctors, and so I think it re- gives a rather distorted uh, idea of what pathology is. And this week is National Pathology Week, and it's the first time this has ever happened. What was the idea behind having this week? Well, we, we've been doing some work at the college in developing an education centre and that was actually finished this month. We took, uh, we took it over and we thought we'd celebrate this by actually developing the part of our mission, which was patient awareness and patient education. And National Pathology Week seemed a great way of doing that. And the enthusiasm we've had from members of the college around the country has been absolutely fantastic. Professor Adrian Newland explaining how pathology is often misunderstood but a vital part of the mechanics of medicine. National Pathology Week included a huge number of events for varying audiences in hospitals, schools and museums around the country. Helping to coordinate events was project manager Ruth Semple, who I met up with in London to find out a bit more about the project. National Pathology Week, it's about getting pathology out to the people. Um, People don't know what pathology is. People tend to think that it's CSI, it's silent witness, um, it's all about dead bodies, that pathologists are really strange, they're really weird, they spend all their time in isolated, cramped labs. That is not true. Most pathologists actually work with the living living patients. 70% of diagnoses are made by pathologists and people don't know that. So it's a communications project. How have the Royal College of Pathologists tried to to send this message out? What sort of events have you put on? Well, we've got a wide range of events. We've got over 200 events. I think it's 250 events in the regions, which is fantastic. And it's a whole range of things. Our target audiences are medical students, healthcare professionals, school students from 14 and above, and anybody of the general public who's interested. So it's quite a lot of different things going on there. So we've got a lot of pathologists who've opened up their labs, they've brought school children in, and they've got to do some hands-on experiments. At the college, we also had a range of events. On Monday, we had a pathology skills workshop, and that was for A-level students. We had eight different workshops from all the different specialties. They got to do hands-on activities, talk to pathologists. The only complaint was that it wasn't long enough and they wanted a whole day. So that's brilliant. 
We had a disease outbreak scenario where we worked with the Natural History Museum. We had an event at the Royal College of Surgeons at the Welcome Museum of Anatomy and Pathology for medical students. It was called Where's My Biopsy Result? Because medical students, they don't know what happens to a biopsy. So we thought it's really important. We need to educate people about this. So we did a hands-on workshop where they got to go through each process and had a go at doing things themselves. And what was really good about the evaluation from that was that 60% who attended had not considered a career in pathology, and now they will consider a career in pathology. And the 40% who had, the event reinforced that. So they, they want to continue and think about pathology, which is brilliant. So shedding some light on the black box that is to many people a pathology lab. Exactly, which is fantastic. I mean, Susie Lishman and I, we've worked very hard. We're very pleased. It's the first time that we've seen people get excited about pathology and want to know more, and it's really, really rewarding, and it's just gone so well, and we're very, very pleased. (laughs) That was Ruth Semple, who was both exhausted and elated when I met up with her on the last day of Pathology Week. Sharing her elation was Dr Susie Lishman, histopathologist and fellow Pathology Week organiser. I couldn't be happier about how National Pathology Week has gone. I'm absolutely delighted with the turnout, with the interest that people have shown in pathology and what we're doing, and in the fantastic feedback that people have been giving us all week about the events, both the ones taking place in London, which I've been involved in, and in communities and hospitals around the whole country. We're getting reports in from pathologists all over the country telling us uh, how well-received their events have been and how people have been asking for more. We haven't been asking the question, but it's been volunteered by both participants and the audience. Please, can we have another National Pathology Week again next year? Pathology Fact. In the UK, spending on pathology accounts for nearly £4 billion. That's 4% of the NHS budget. National Pathology Week celebrates pathology. And one thing definitely worth celebrating is the development of new ways to treat debilitating diseases. The drug Campath is named after the department it was developed in, Cambridge Pathology. And it was developed to target white blood cells, lymphocytes, to treat leukaemia and help in bone marrow transplantation by stopping the host's immune system from rejecting the transplant. To do this, researchers developed what's called a humanised monoclonal antibody. That's a protein very similar to the antibodies that your body produces in response to infection. In the case of Campath, instead of an antibody targeting an invader, like a bacteria, this would be an antibody that would target the body's own lymphocytes. They're the white blood cells that normally fight infection, but which can also trigger graft-versus-host disease, and if they become cancerous, leukaemias. When these antibodies lock onto the lymphocytes, they trigger your normal immune system to come in and destroy them. The researchers injected human lymphocytes into rats, and then the rats' immune systems produced antibodies that were perfectly tailored to the correct human cells. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as taking these rat antibodies and injecting them into a person, as parts of the antibody would be recognised as foreign by our own immune system, which would dispose of these antibodies before they had chance to get to work. By replacing key areas of the protein structure of the rat antibody with very similar human versions, they humanised the rat antibody, making a drug that won't be targeted by our immune system. 
Naked scientist Chris Smith spoke to one of the researchers involved in the development of CAMPATH, Dr Mike Clark from Cambridge University's pathology department. CAMPATH is a a therapeutic antibody that's currently licensed for the treatment of B-cell lymphocytic leukaemia, but it was originally developed, the original research project was to try and develop an antibody that would prevent graft-versus-host disease in bone marrow transplantation. And it was only later on, after we successfully came up with an antibody that could do that, that we realised that we could uh, make use of the antibody and engineer it further for other clinical uses. People will probably be quite intrigued to think that you can take an antibody, which is naturally part of your immune system anyway, and make it do other things. So how do you do that? Well, in in this case, we relied on the fact that if you were to inject human cells into an animal, then the animal sees the human cells as something to be defended against. And so it makes antibodies against against human cells. So we made uh, rat antibodies against human lymphocytes. And then we further engineered those rat antibodies in order to turn them back into human antibodies, but still reacting with the human lymphocytes. So we could kill human lymphocytes in vivo using a humanized antibody that originally came from a rat. And I suppose the benefit of making the antibody look human is that then the human's immune system, when you put it in, doesn't attack the antibody. Yes, that's a a complication. When you start using antibodies in vivo in in, in patients, that not only are they useful in targeting foreign antigens, they look like foreign antigens themselves, and then they become a target for the immune system, yes. So the immune system is effectively fighting the immune system. And what does this antibody do? When, When you put it into the body, how does it do the job of attacking the white blood cells? Okay, in the case of CAMPATH, it recognises an antigen that is, rec- is expressed on all lymphocytes. So the antibody binds to all lymphocytes, and then we've engineered it to have a particular constant region. Um, that's the, the region of the antibody that attracts in effector mechanisms. And these effector mechanisms then target other cells in the immune system to kill those, those cells, the T cells and the, and the B cells. So effectively what it's doing is labelling a target in the body as something that other components of the body's immune system should get rid of. That's exactly right. So uh, it, it's a, a flag that attracts in other chemicals and also other cells, FC receptors, that then recognise the antibodies bound to a target and signals the target for destruction. What does it bind to on what sorts of cells and therefore how does it make sure that you only get rid of certain things in the body? Well, the, the, the target antigen in the case of CAMPATH is an antigen that's called uh, CD52. Uh, that, that's a, just a, a simple numerical description of, of, of a leukocyte antigen. But this is a, a very small little peptide that's anchored into the membrane of, of all lymphocytes um, and is exclusive to, to that cell population and therefore attracts the antibody to bind to only that cell type. So once you've injected someone with CAMPATH, what happens to that person's cells? Okay, so the antibody circulates through the body, it binds to the antigen on the surface of lymphocytes and then recruits all these killing mechanisms and destroys those lymphocytes. Doesn't this mean that the person's left with no white blood cells? Uh, Well, the person is left with no lymphocytes. Other other white cells remain unaffected, so uh, other important cells that that are important for maintaining uh, stability are, are still fine. But yes, the person lacks lymphocytes and so effectively they're immunosuppressed for a period of time. And is that effect permanent, or will those cells come back in the future? 
No, a crucial aspect of the Campath antigen is it's expressed on mature lymphocytes. It's not expressed on the progenitors. So whilst we are immunosuppressing the patient temporarily by removing the mature cells, those recover when new progenitors mature into, into new mature cells after the antibodies disappeared from the circulation. But what are the downsides of getting rid of someone's entire lymphocyte population? Because they're there for a reason, those cells. Is, is the person not vulnerable to all kinds of infections? Well, experience has shown us that patients are, are vulnerable to certain types of infections for a short window of time after treatment with, with Campath. So yes, uh, there is a period of immunosuppression. There, there is a susceptibility to certain types of infection, but that window seems to disappear quite quickly. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's a complication. It's a serious complication, but nevertheless, it's a tolerable one when you look at the particular diseases that we're targeting. And what sorts of conditions can you use it for? We developed uh, CAMPATH originally for bone marrow transplantation, so it's, it's, it's still used off-label for that. But the, the major labelled use of CAMPATH at the moment is for treating B-cell lymphocytic leukaemia. So that's obviously a cancer of, of the B-cells. And so, you know, these patients would die um, through having these tumours if it weren't for the, the CAMPATH able to kill the tumour cells off, but at the same time also inducing maybe a temporary period of immunosuppression. Then later on, you know, we've explored the use of the antibody in autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and now looking at multiple sclerosis. So absolutely, yes, it's showing results in a number of different diseases and MS is just one of those. So Campath already showed great promise for treating transplant rejection and for certain forms of cancer, but researchers were very interested in the possibility of treating MS or multiple sclerosis. MS is an autoimmune disease in which our immune system attacks our nervous system. In particular, it attacks the myelin sheath around nerve cells. Clinical trials have recently revealed that Campath not only suppresses relapses of MS far more effectively than the current standard treatment, but also reduces MS-related disability. In other words, rather than just halting the decline, patients in the study actually showed improvement in their symptoms. Campath is the first treatment seen to do this for sufferers of MS. To find out why Campath is so effective, Chris Smith also spoke to Dr Alistair Coles from Cambridge Neuroscience. If you see a young adult in this country who's disabled, then the likely thing is that they have multiple sclerosis. So this is the commonest disease of the brain and the spinal cord amongst Caucasian people in the West. It's a disease where the immune system attacks a particular part of the nerve in the brain or in the spinal cord. Now, that particular part is the myelin sheath. Now, what that means is the insulation that covers the nerve. And what that means is that nerves can lie across each other and short-circuit, or impulses intended for one area can cross over to another nerve and not reach their target. And so you get electrical confusion in the brain. Does this happen everywhere, or is it quite discrete bits of the brain that get affected? You're absolutely right. The immune attack is just on specific patches within the brain, and each patch will go through a period where there's lots of inflammation, it may cause symptoms, and then it resolves and dies away, leaving scarring, only for other areas of the brain to become involved. Do you know what bits of the immune system are, are doing that damage? So multiple sclerosis is um, one of these diseases where we are all capable of getting it. So if I looked in your blood or in my blood or anyone else's blood, we would find cells of the immune system, T lymphocytes, 
that are aggressive towards myelin, towards the brain. The thing that's stopping you or I from getting multiple sclerosis is that we have another set of cells called the regulatory T-cells, which prevent the aggressive T-cells from carrying out their attack. And in people who have multiple sclerosis, the defect is that their regulatory T-cells are not working properly. So what have you been looking at in terms of how to get people to have the best outcome possible for them? Our initial logic was very simple, which is to say multiple sclerosis is a disease where the immune system attacks the brain. Let's disable the immune system and it will no longer attack the brain. And we looked around for a drug that might do that and we came across alemtuzumab, or as it was known then, Campan. And we said, well, this is a drug that deliberately hones in, identifies and kills one of the cells of the immune system, the lymphocyte. And it disables the immune system very effectively. And what was the nature of that trial? How many people? What did you do? Okay, so this is a trial that we've recently announced the results of and it consists of 300 patients studied over three years and we're comparing the new drug against the standard licensed therapy of multiple sclerosis, which is beta interferon. So this is a head-to-head study saying, does this new drug, Campathalamtuzumab, work better than beta interferon? And the results were this, that uh, Alamtuzumab, Campath, is vastly more effective than beta interferon. It does three things. Firstly, it reduces the chance of having an attack of multiple sclerosis over three years by over 70% compared to taking the standard treatment. Secondly, it reduces the chance of becoming disabled over three years by over 70%. And both of those things we were expecting. The third result, though, which we weren't expecting, is that at the end of three years, patients who'd taken alemtuzumab or Campath were actually less disabled than they had been at the start of the study. So three years later... They were now more able to work, more able to look after their family, more able to play their sports. And that has forced us to go back and say, do we really understand the disease of multiple sclerosis? Because up until now, people have always thought that once you've got disability from multiple sclerosis, that is due to permanent scarring in the brain, and that will never get better. And we had imagined that the best we could get out of any treatment of multiple sclerosis is that people would just stay the same and not get any worse. But amazingly, we now see people getting better. What do you think is going on? Well, we're back to the drawing board on this. One idea is that when the immune system recovers after being attacked by this drug, Alemtuzumab or Campath, that immune cells grow back, which are capable of getting into the brain and secreting factors which promote the repair and the survival of neurons and of the cells which produce myelin oligodendrocytes. That's certainly not what we were expecting, but we've found it to be true. That was Alistair Coles explaining to Chris Smith why a drug developed by the Department of Pathology seemed to fit the bill for treating MS, and then surprised the researchers by being the very first drug not only to treat MS, but to reduce MS symptoms. That's all for this Pathology Week podcast. In the rest of the series, we highlight key events throughout the week. We get involved in an outbreak of plague and in an autopsy, thankfully both only simulated, and we ask a panel of doctors and industry experts whether home medical testing could be the future of medicine or just a road to ruin. 
You can find out more about National Pathology Week online at nationalpathologyweek.org. That's all one word. And you can visit the Royal College of Pathologists online at rcpath.org. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientist.com, and thanks very much for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.